0: Judges chapter 8, all of the world is a stage, and the men and the women merely players. They have their entrances, and they have their exits, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. So wrote William Shakespeare, right? in his play, As You Like It. No doubt you have heard of these words, you have read these words, or maybe you've had a, you had a cruel English teacher that made you memorize these words. <laughs> Whatever the case, these are some of the uh, most famous words in English ever strung together. And these, these just few words, Shakespeare compares life to that of a theatre. Right? In a theater, there are different actors who have different roles. And as they go through the play, as the play unfolds, they, 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 they change. If you've ever seen a play, gone to the theater, or just watched a movie, you know how this works, right? We have different characters. We have major characters and minor characters. Some make it to the end. Some don't. We have heroes. We have villains. But each actor has his or her own unique role to play. Now, this seems pretty self evident. This is a pretty self evident metaphor for life, a description of life. The world is a bit like a play. Each person, each individual, each of us has a distinct role. So, for instance, me, I am currently cast by God in my role as father to four children. I am the husband of one wife. I am pastor of this church. I am citizen of this nation, and you can go on and on and on. I have a distinct role, as do you. This is pretty self-evident. But the question this morning is this. It's the question that the author of Judges is asking of us. What happens when God tasks you in a role now nah, that left to yourself you would never choose? What if you're playing a role in life, you're a character in this role, and you're pretty displeased with the role you find yourself in? What happens with your di- when you're disappointed? All of us experience disappointments, don't we? Friends disappoint us. Co workers disappoint us. Churches disappoint us. Sometimes we even look to the heavens, point our finger at God, because in our estimation, he has disappointed us. And maybe worse of all, we disappoint ourselves, don't we? We disappoint others we love. Well, this morning, in Judges chapter 8, we're going to see loads of disappointments. Many disappointments. And yet, behind all of the disappointments, sort of flickering in the background, is a particular promise of God's grace. Like always, I'll have the big idea behind me in the screen, and it's just simply this. We have a hope in the midst of our many disappointments, and it's the hope of a king That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you will, turn with me to Judges chapter 8. We're going to read the first 31 verses. Starting in verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes of harvest of Abizur? God has given into into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing... So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the, king, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briers and from there he went to penuel and spoke to the men in the same way and the men of penuel answered him as the men of sukkoth had answered and he said to the men of penuel when i come again in, when i come again in peace i will break down this tower now zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with their with their army around 15000 men all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers of the Noab and Jagabah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris. And he captured the young men of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, seventy seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands? That you, we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them and taught the men of lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where is the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every man, every, every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you have saved them alive, I will not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, or his firstborn, rise and kill him. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. We'll stop there. So beginning back in verse 1, we have the tribe of Ephraim. This is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Ephraim, at this point in the history of Israel, is a very, very powerful tribe. And Gideon calls on them, back in chapter 7, verse 24, to cut off Midian as they're fleeing. If you remember two weeks ago when we looked at chapters 6 and 7, you have Gideon who goes against Midian. Midian and their army that is described as locusts. And God whittles down Israel's army to a a few hundred men. Three hundred. And they win. God shows and displays his own power by the weakness of three hundred men. And at this point, the the troops of Midian, they, they start fighting each other and they're sort of scattered to the wind. But Gideon's on the chase now in chapter 8. And so he calls on Ephraim to the south to cut them off. Mighty Ephraim, come to us. Gideon and the rest of these surrender men, they want to finish the job. And yet, in verse 1, we learn that Ephraim's not happy, are they? They're sort of ticked off. We read in verse 1, they question Gideon and they say, Why didn't you call us when you were fighting the Midianites? They're frustrated that they weren't a part of that victory. They wanted glory. They didn't receive glory. And so Gideon's sort of in between a rock and a hard place. And Gideon, wisely, goes the sort of diplomatic route. In verse 2, Gideon points out how powerful Ephraim is. And then in verse three, Gideon points out that, that they and not him captured two Mennonite princes. Here we see Gideon sort of stroking their pride, saying, Oh, you're you're so powerful, Ephraim. They're angry. Gideon's afraid. And so he appeals to their vanity, and their anger cools. Verse three. Now, what's going on here? Well, Ephraim is, like I said earlier, one of the strongest tribes. They're one of the most strong tribes economically and militarily. Gideon? Not Gideon. He, we learned this earlier in chapter 6, is from the weakest clan in a weak tribe called Manasseh. So put yourself in Ephraim's shoes. They They were sort of used to being on top. No, they're not. Ephraim was a superstar. They were a starter in God's, you know, starting five. And now as it relates to this little battle, they're, they're benchwarmers. And they're ticked off and angry. And so Gideon must have been terrified for his life. He, he's like, oh, they're going to kill me for not calling them to fight this initial battle. I mean, looking at this, you might think, well, a win's a win, Right? I mean, look, the Midian's this oppressive foreign nation, and they, they beat them. Uh, but sometimes a win's not a win, is it? And Gideon, frankly, barely escapes with his life if it wasn't for his smart, diplomatic kind of boasting of them. But that's not the only thing that's sort of disappointing, is it? Not only do we see Ephraim sort of boast, We've got to move on, because Ephraim's not the only one that boasts and taunts Gideon. Now we read of two cities and two kings that also taunt and boast against Gideon. So starting in verse four, if you see there, Gideon's exhausted. Right? You can just just imagine the scene. He's, he's chasing with his 300 men, uh, Midian and, you know, these thousands, tens of thousands of troops. And they're tired. They're hungry, they're thirsty. And they arrive in a city. They say, can, can we have some food? Can we have some water? It seems reasonable, right? But these two cities refuse, don't they? Like Ephraim, they show a lack of gratitude to Gideon, who just defeated their enemies. Essentially, they say to Gideon, do you have these two kings in your hands? Well, no, you don't. So don't look to us to help you. After all, if Gideon isn't able to actually kill these two kings, just think about what might happen. Anyone who helped Gideon, any city that helped Gideon, is going to be destroyed. And these two cities are sort of on the outskirts of the Promised Land. So for security reasons, it's not in their best interest to help Gideon at this point. They don't know how this is all going to go. And so they say, well, if you if would have finished the job or if you would have killed these two kings maybe we would have helped you but we're not going to help you right now it's sort of ironic when you compare Ephraim and these two cities Ephraim is annoyed that Gideon didn't call them earlier these two cities are annoyed that Gideon hadn't called them later it's sort of a lose-lose for Gideon isn't it and so what we're seeing here is sort of a lack of hospitality Because when you think about it, all hospitality is risky. Inviting someone into your home, into your lives, strangers, neighbors, friends you don't know that well, there's a risk, isn't there? You don't know how it's going to go. Hospitality, by definition, is always an act of faith. And here we learn that two cities, well, They didn't trust that God really would finish the job. And so they neglected to be hospitable. And we can do this too, can't we? We have our fears. When we look at our neighbor or our cities or our community, those people who are not like us, God calls us to love our neighbor, but but sometimes for fear, we neglect hospitality because it's too risky. We sort of have a cost-benefit analysis, thinking, ah, the, the cost outweighs the reward, and that's what was going on in these two cities. And yet, one of the marks of true biblical love actually is hospitality. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2, the author writes this, continue in brotherly love, and then he describes what brotherly love looks like and says, How? Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then the the most surprising thing, for by doing some, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Well, next, Gideon responds to these two cities, doesn't he? He responds to their lack of help and lack of hospitality, and he promises judgment on them. Vengeance on them. Punishment for them. We see that in verses 7 and 9. Gideon then leaves without filling his stomach or filling his thirst. They leave. And then eventually Gideon attacks and and defeats the army once more. He captures these two kings. And then he does as he's bringing these two kings back and he's coming back to those two cities in that area, he does some reconnaissance. He he grabs a man from that first city, Sukkoth, and he says, "Um, I want a list of names. And he gets 77 of them. He discovers the the elders of this city and he says, I'm going to fulfill what I promised. He teaches them a lesson. They had taunted him, we learn in verse 15, and now judgment is coming upon them. And so he enacts some physical violence on them. He humiliates them, verse 16. Now, unfortunately, it's not any better for Penuel. Gideon literally pulls down their tower. They had a tower in this city, which was their refuge, their their security. When It was like their their Helm's Deep, if you read Lord of the Rings, right? Whenever things went bad, you know, they're on the outskirts, they would just rush to this tower for protection, for sanctuary. And Gideon pulls it down and kills anyone who is in the tower. There's an echo back to chapter 6, if you remember. In chapter 6, Gideon takes down the towers of idols in his community. Now he takes down the towers of Penuel. Well, after this, we have two kings that taunt. First Ephraim, then two cities, now two kings. This starts in verse 18. And Gideon moves to execute these kings, but, but we learn of a new detail, don't we? These two kings killed Gideon's brothers. No no wonder he's pursuing them so aggressively. Well, Gideon then wants to humiliate him. And the best way to humiliate? Get a small boy and have that small boy kill these two kings. There's nothing noble about that sort of death. And so he he looks at his boy, a young boy, a boy who could barely wield a sword and says, I want you to kill these two kings. The boy can't do it, can he? And he doesn't do it. And so Gideon does it. Gideon performs the execution of these two kings and then he plunders their wealth. So what, what do we learn about this? This sort of bloody mess. Well, what we see here in Ephraim, and the two cities, and the two kings, it's a clear description of sin. But not just sin in general, but a particular sin, pride. In so many ways, the sin behind all sin, it's the sin of pride, isn't it? The setting up of ourselves as little gods. And when sin sets up shop in a person's heart, something always comes with it. We see it in this text. Anger. Anger always comes with pride. We see it in Ephraim's anger. We see it in the taunting of these two cities and these two kings. Now, why is pride and anger connected? Well, it's because anger is pride's natural defense mechanism. When your pride is threatened, anger comes and marches to her defense. I mean, we see this in lots of stories. Just, just think of a very, very early story in your Bible Genesis 3. Adam sins. It's a sin of pride. He knows better. And so God then comes to him. And you'd think Adam would take responsibility for his sin, but no, he doesn't take responsibility for his sin at all, does he? He actually turns to God in anger and says, why'd you give me this dang woman? It's her fault. Earlier he was singing poetry to her when he first sees her, and now he's like, nope, her fault. He's being threatened, his pride, he's being humiliated in that moment. His his, his sin of pride is being exposed, and the way to defend himself from God is to... Get angry towards God. Pride and anger are like dancing partners. Pride leads, ah, but dancing always follows in her footsteps. You rarely see pride and anger not together. And I think one of the ways, if you're wondering, like, okay, but, uh, how does this work itself out, or how can I see this? I really do think that the easiest way to see this in our lives collectively is to look at the issue of criticism. What happens in your heart? What happens in your mind? What happens in your soul? What happens in your just life when someone criticizes you? Well, I think a couple things. One, we either sulk. We either defend, right? We all have our inner lawyer. None of us. Most of us didn't go to law school, but when we're criticized, we're all lawyers, right? We defend ourselves. Or, like Ephraim, these two cities and these two kings, we attack. We get angry. We might not even have memorized many much of the Old Testament, but we know eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You criticize me, I'm coming for you. And so we might do it subtly through gossip or taunting. What happens in your life when someone criticizes you? Can you listen to that criticism? Maybe it's not a full truth. Maybe it's 95% garbage. Can you listen to that 5%? Or does anger march to your own defense? It wasn't your fault. It was a bad week. Or maybe this. Are you someone who is safe to receive criticism? Maybe you're sitting there going, I actually don't get that much criticism. And the question I have for you is, maybe the reason is because you're not safe. Because people are scared. Well, if I give them feedback, or if I say, oh, maybe they didn't do that right, I'd be scared of them. Uh, This is particularly uh, disheartening for, for leaders in this church. Elders, deacons, ministry leaders. Are you safe for people to give you feedback? to give you advice, criticism? Or more than that, do you ask for it? Do you want feedback? Do you pursue it? He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. Proverbs fifteen thirty two. There are so many proverbs about this. In many ways, the, the book of Proverbs explains it this way. Fools don't listen. Wise people listen. Now now we know that as we're just talking about pride and anger, there is a thing called righteous anger. We know that there's that. That's not what we're seeing in our text, is it? And if we're honest, that's not what we experience in our own lives. Most of our anger is not righteous anger. It's just anger that comes as a result of our pride being bruised. And then anger marches to her defense. And I think there's something particularly wonderful if you're a Christian. Because there's, at our arsenal, a wonderful gift that we can have as we even think about criticism in our lives. If you're a Christian, it means you've accepted the gospel, which means that our approval doesn't come from others, it comes from God. Our approval doesn't come from our performance. It comes from God's performance. And so if that's the case, then when someone does criticize you, when, someone, when, not, when it's experienced any form of humiliation or when you feel like you've disappointed someone, it's not universally destroying. You, you can withstand that onslaught of criticism because you know that God in Christ approves of you and will never abandon you. Or forsake you. There's something wonderful in the Christian gospel that actually fortifies our lives, even in the midst of criticism, that help us to encourage us. I think sometimes we just think of the gospel as that which saves us, but the gospel message actually helps us live the Christian life. It fuels us, even in divisive times, even when people say, untrue things, or even when people give us feedback that it's 90% wrong, the gospel says, listen to that 10%. Be humble. Be humble. That's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. Well, not only do we see pride here and sin, we also see another description we see a description of sin and pride, but then just very quickly, we see a description of what will happen, what God will do, how God responds to sin and pride. And it's judgment, isn't it? Just, just look at Gideon. We see this all throughout this book, and we see it all throughout this chapter. Ephraim's judgment will actually come, right? Literally. If you just keep reading, we'll get to it in chapter 12. Ephraim's judgment will come. These two cities, these two kings, their judgment comes. But God, because he is holy, must judge sin. God's holiness demands that he will judge sin and evil and injustice. And we read of it all throughout the Bible. One place we read it, which is really interesting, is in Isaiah chapter three, in verses eighteen through twenty-three. There's this list of items that are lost on the day of the Lord. It's really weird. That the day of the Lord is that day in which God will God will come and judge the world. And on that day, the prophet Isaiah lists a few items that are not included: crescents, some finery, and some rings. In Judges' day, in the book of Judges in chapter 8, did you notice that Gideon strips these two Midianite kings of those very things? Verse 21. They got a small level of judgment, but judgment will come universally on that day because judgment comes on all sin. All those who are opposed to God in their sin and in their pride, they'll be judged So if that being the case, if we're all sinful, if we all have pride, if anger marches to all of our defense, what sort of hope do we have? Well, we just have to keep reading. Because what we're going to see starting in verse 22 is that there is hope. So look look with me starting in verse 22. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from the spoil, from every... for they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments and the pennants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an apoph of it and put in in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest for 40 years. We'll stop there. So sometime later, Israel comes to Gideon with a request. It's a pretty simple request. They look at Gideon and say, we want you to be our king and all your sons and sons' sons and sons, 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 to be our king verse 22 and they do this because they say because you're so good in battle they said we want you to be a king because you fought destroyed and won the victory against Midian and what they're doing is they're they're more or less rejecting God's way of uh, of installing a, a judge and a savior we've seen this all the way through the book of Judges a judge is always appointed by God to, to, to deal with a particular crisis and then to lead God's people back into covenantal faithfulness, into obedience to God. After all, these, these four nations come as a result of their idolatry and sin. And so getting to his credit, he discerns their motivation perfectly. They want to be ruled by God because they don't want to be ruled by, or they want to be ruled by man because they don't want to be ruled by God verse 23, right? As, as man is their king, they no longer need to look to God for their own salvation. Now, if you're not a Christian, my guess is this sort of Jesus is king idea, it's probably the hardest to stomach and swallow. Jesus is savior. Good. Jesus is healer. Good. You know, Jesus as friend. Good. But Jesus who is king, Jesus who reigns, Jesus who calls the shots, Jesus who says what is good and what is not good, that's harder, isn't it? And I don't in one sense blame you. I mean, just look at all of the abusive leaders, the tyrant leaders. We've had some poor leaders, just the history of man. It's hard to submit ourselves to any sort of leader. But if you're not a Christian, I just want you to consider this very idea. It's not just that God is king. That is true. But it's not a sufficient truth. It's that God is a good king. And so if you, if you, if you question the reasonableness of trusting your life and submitting your life to Jesus as king, you should stare into his character. The character of God, the love of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God. The people I know who trust God most supremely are those who have stared most deeply into the character of God. So if you're you're not a Christian here today, I I would just say I would love to, or men and women in this church would love to walk with you and consider the character of God such that you consider the kingship of God. If if you want more information about that, I'll be in the back after the service, or you can just talk to most people in this sanctuary right now. Well, back to verse 23. Israel wants Gideon to be their king, and Gideon turns them down. And yet there's something odd going on here, because soon after Gideon begins to sort of act like a king. I don't know if you noticed this. He sort of takes kind of kingly uh, uh, characteristics. Verse twenty four, he, he takes a financial reward for their deliverance. Verses twenty five and twenty six, right? He becomes very rich. One thousand seven hundred shekels—that's a lot. Okay, I don't know what that is in dollars, but we're talking like one percent kind of thing, right? <laughs> then, if you go down to verse twenty nine and verse through thirty one. He has a kingly harem, many, many wives, even has concubines. And then just look at what one of the sons of Gideon is. His name is Abimelech. Now, we're going to read all about Abimelech next week, chapter 9. He is an unfortunate character, okay? So I'm not going to talk about his character or about what's going to happen next, next week. You can read that this week. I'm not going to spoil it. But just look at his name, Abimelech. His name literally means, my father is king. Gideon names his son, my father is king. I mean, what Gideon rejected in word, I'm not going to be your king, he sort of is accepting it in reality. Now go back to verse 27. And Gideon takes the gold that he received and he makes an ephod. The high priestly garment, and he places it in his hometown. Now, this, this kind of high priestly uh, attire was worn in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was where God and man could actually be, it's where God's presence was. And so, here now, Gideon is making his own copy. And he's, he's essentially, he's, he's, he's sort of making his home, his hometown, his city, a place of worship. And what's the effect of all of this? It's tragic, isn't it? Verse 27. Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. If you remember back to chapter 6, Gideon had two callings, two divine callings, two heavenly callings. Defeat Midian. God had given them into his hands. Second, tear down the idolatry in his city. God then, or er, Gideon then does that first, that, that first thing and his second thing. He, he tears down the idols in his town, but he failed his divine job description, doesn't he? He has military victory, but even in his lifetime, and this is the first time we see this, in Gideon's own lifetime, they return to idolatry. We're going to see this for the rest of the book. Every time God raises up a judge it's not like after he dies then the people go back to idolatry. No, even in the judge's lifetime they sin and worship other gods. And in many ways that's what we see in verses 33 through 35. It gets even worse after he dies. Now I said that there is hope. Where in the world is this hope? Well, It comes in part in verse 28. Look at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Who is this God? The land had rest, meaning Israel for 40 years wasn't at war. Israel doesn't deserve this. Gideon doesn't deserve this. This is, in one verse, a description of outrageous grace, unmerited favor. Forty years. I mean, Who is this God? Well, he's a God of grace, a God of love, a God who lavishes his favor on his people over and over and over again. That's the testimony of all of your lives. It's the testimony of my life. And yet, even in this kind of general grace, this particular grace, this specific grace, there's something tragic even about this. Because if we just keep reading in the book of Judges, this is the last time that the land has rest. If you go back and look at all of the previous judges, except for Shamgar, all of them have that in common. Othniel has rest. Deborah's days, After Deborah and and Barak save the people, there's rest. Jehud, rest. Gideon, rest. But after this, you're never going to see that word come up again. The land no longer has rest. Actually, the book of Judges is going to get darker and darker and darker, such that there aren't even judges by the end of it. Yet God is gracious for 40 years and the land has rest in the days of Gideon. But that's not the ultimate rest and it's not the ultimate hope. Rest from war is not the hope that's dangled before all of us. Rest from the world's suffering or from the world's complications is not what is dangled out that we're supposed to catch and cling to for our hope. But there is something Because if our only hope is that if we believe in God or trust in God that our life is going to go easy, we're just going to be disappointed. That's not the hope that we have in our Bibles. That's not the hope that God promises to us. But He does provide a hope for us. It's a hope that in the midst of judgment, in the midst of our sin and our pride, God's going to do something. He's going to Send a king. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of God what to look for in a king. Chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. This is what a king should be. God needs to choose this king. God will raise up this king. The king must come from Israel. Couldn't be a foreigner. The king must seek no riches or wealth or many wives... And the king must follow God's word all his life. That's the divine job description of the king of Israel. And so here we have Israel wanting a king. They want a king. It's something I think in all of our hearts. We all want a king. It was good for them to want a king. And so they asked Gideon to be their king. But just... Just, just look at Deuteronomy 17 and Gideon's life, and you realize Gideon's not the king of Deuteronomy. Gideon fails the Deuteronomy test. He was a snare to them. So Israel keeps looking for a king, don't they? And they find one in Saul. Ah, but you don't have to read far into Saul's life to realize he's not that king either. He fails. And then you get David, and you think, gotta be David. He is the king to which all other kings are compared to. Mm. He's not the king either, is he? He fails in some extraordinary ways. And so they just keep looking for king after king after king. And then they get to the exile, Babylon, or Assyria first, and then Babylon. And the people have gotten in Assyria. And after that point, it's not even, it's all foreign kings just gets worse and worse and worse but the point is that they keep searching and searching and searching because they are hoping for this king the 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 hope of deuteronomy it just lingers in the background of god's people's minds their hope for a king that a king would rise up and deliver them because they needed to be saved from their pride and their sin They're sort of haunted by this reality year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. They're they're hungry for this reality. They're they're like hungry for this steak dinner and each king is like getting a tic-tac. That is until the day would come when God would send the true king. A king who, who, who obeyed God's word fully. Actually, more than that, not only did he obey God's word fully, John chapter 1 tells us that he was the word. He comes from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. He's a line of power. He is the scepter-wielding lion king. And whereas all other kings sinned, this king never sinned. Most of the other kings were anointed by God. Oh, but this king isn't just anointed by God, is he? He is indwelled with the Holy Spirit and never quenches the Spirit. And this king, whereas so many kings, they look for foreign wives and wealth and power and prestige, this king didn't. This king didn't get rich at others' expense. He exchanged the riches of heaven in infinite riches. And he exchanged that riches for the poverty of the incarnation. He takes up a crown, not a crown of silver or gold or sapphires or rubies. This king takes on a crown of thorns and he's exalted on a throne not made of gold. It's made of wood because he's exalted on a cross, a cursed cross. The lion with endless power becomes the lamb who is slaughtered for sinners like you and me. The kings would would the kings would lead God's people always to conquer God's enemies. That's one of their roles. That's what the kingly role is supposed to do: charge the enemies of God. But it wasn't just the Midianites that this king would charge and conquer this king would defeat the greatest foe of all, our sin, our pride, and he would take it upon himself. The wrath of God would be poured on him. And instead of him sitting on the judgment seat, he took the judgment seat for us. And when this was accomplished, The consequence is that man now has rest, not for 40 years. God, no, man has rest now forever because of this king and his reign and his rule and his life, death, resurrection, and now ascension. You see, all the other kings of Israel were, were charged with carrying out God's rule on earth. All of them failed, some more miserably than others. But now this king, Jesus Christ, comes and when he is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he now presently reigns as king over creation, exercising his dominion perfectly. You see, if if we look at this and all we see is Gideon, if all we see is Gideon in this text, oh, we're going to be disappointed, aren't we? If all we see is, is a king, oh, we're going to be disappointed. Because all of the characters of chapter 8 are disappointing. That's not where we're supposed to hinge our hope on. We're supposed to hinge our hope on what Gideon is pointing to. You see, all the kings left of Matthew are pointing to the king right of Malachi. All of the kings in the Old Testament are pointing. They're shadows of the real, glorious, true, perfect, great, powerful king, Jesus Christ. All of us have disappointments. I know some of your disappointments, not all of them. We all have disappointments. After all, the world is a stage. We're players in that stage. We all have our entrances. We all have our exits. Sometimes we like them. Sometimes we don't like them. But in this stage called life, if we can describe it that metaphorically, Our hope is not in our roles. Our hope is not in our circumstances right now. Our hope is not in kings or powers. Our hope is in the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. The king who judges the world by being judged himself. The king who rules by conquering sin and death and pride and anger by dying on the cross for those very things. Gideon was right in this. He was much more right than I think he even knew. Our hope isn't in earthly kings. We're just going to be disappointed in that reality. Our hope, our hope in the midst of our many disappointments and disillusionment is in the Lord who will rule over us. And he does so by sending his son. So with that, let's pray and then we'll sing together about this great reality. God, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your goodness. And we're so grateful that, that we're not kings. That, that though, though there are times in which we, we really do think that we are kings of our little kingdoms, Lord, we are thankful for the times in which you humble us and remind us that you are the sovereign Lord. And that there isn't one square inch to which you cannot divinely say, Mine. Help us live in the reality of that. Help us to be reminded that you are a good king who rules in your goodness and will one day come and return. And we look forward to that day when you wipe away all of our disappointments and fulfill our lives with gladness. We look forward to that great and awesome day. And we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.